We're in the middle of our series in Ezra. We've been reading through and we're going to finish up chapter 6 today in your Bibles. So if you've got your Bibles, Ezra chapter 6 is where we're going to hang out. And you've seen kind of this theme, this return, rebuild, and repent thing. And today is kind of the culmination of the rebuilding and the beginning of the repenting. It's kind of where we're going to be today. Okay? So in Ezra, we've seen this picture uh, that the people of Israel, just kind of give us a little timeline of where we're at. The people of Israel um, living in Jerusalem were not living the way that God asked them to live. And God allowed them to fall into captivity from King Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon. And so they were exiled out of Jerusalem and lived in Babylon. And the temple that was in Jerusalem was destroyed. And so for a number of decades, the people of God have not been living in the city of God and they don't have a temple of God. And God in 538 BC makes a way for them to return. He, he, he inclines the heart of King Cyrus to allow the people of God to return to the city of God with a purpose. Their purpose is to rebuild the temple. And so the people of God make their way back, led by Zerubbabel. They come back in 538 B.C. And in 536 B.C., two years later, they lay the foundation of the temple and they celebrate it. And that same year, opposition from the people around Jerusalem came upon them and the building of the temple stopped. The people of Israel did not build for 16 years. And then after being encouraged and emboldened by the teachings of Haggai and Zechariah, these prophets, the people of God boldly begin rebuilding the temple again. And we see that as they rebuild the temple, four years later, they finish rebuilding the temple. And in chapter 6, verse 15, we get kind of the date. And the house was finished on the third day of the month of Adar in the sixth year of the reign of Darius the king. And if we did the kind of calendar math that we would need to do to equate their calendar to our calendar today, that date would be March 12th, 516 B.C. They finished the temple. They celebrated it. They worshiped together in it, and they set it apart for further worship, for worship for decades to come, for centuries to come service to God. The people of God returned to the city of God and built the temple of God. And we pick up in verse 19 of chapter 6 with, with, our, with our story today. On the 14th day of the first month, the returned exiles kept the Passover. For the priests and the Levites had purified themselves together. All of them were clean. So they slaughtered the Passover lamb for all the returned exiles, for their fellow priests and for themselves. It was eaten by the people of Israel who'd returned from exile and also by everyone who had joined them and separated himself from the uncleanness of the peoples of the land to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. And they kept the feast of the of unleavened bread seven days with joy, for the Lord had made them joyful and had turned the heart of the king of Syria to them. So they, he aided them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. So on the 14th day of the first month, 
the returned exiles kept the Passover. Again, if we did the calendar math, it would be April 21st, 516 BC. So just over a month after the temple is dedicated and celebrated and set apart, the feast of bat or the, the celebration of Passover happens. Just a month later. And so the people of God, living in the city of God, in the temple of God, get to celebrate this thing that God set apart for them so many centuries before. This thing called Passover. They purified themselves and the lamb was slaughtered for all of Israel, but also for those who had converted and started to follow God. They celebrate Passover. So what is Passover? Passover is a time of remembering that God brought the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt. It's a time of remembering how good God is towards the people of Israel. And so we can read about this in Exodus chapter 12. So if you've got your Bibles, flip back to Exodus. It's the second book in the Bible chapter 12, and we'll, we'll start reading in verse 3 here in a minute, but just to give a little bit of context, at this point in the, in the lives of the Israelites, they're enslaved in Egypt. The people of God are in slavery in Egypt, and God sends Moses to go talk to Pharaoh. Hey, Pharaoh, let God's people go. And Pharaoh's heart is hardened, and he refuses, and so God begins this, this series of plagues poured out over Egypt in order to show Egypt who he is, that he is God. And so we see these plagues come out on Egypt one after another after another, and Pharaoh's heart gets harder and harder and harder, and he will not let Israel out of their slavery. And so God provides one last plague over Egypt. And that's where we pick up in Exodus 12, verse 3. God is speaking to all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for the household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. And you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall take, shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. So God instructs the people of Israel to take a lamb uh, that doesn't have any blemishes, that's a year old, and, and to keep it for four days. And on that last day, at twilight, all of Israel, every family of Israel kills the lamb that they have for their house. And they take that blood and they put it on the doorposts. And they put it over the headboard or the header of the door. Why do they have to do this? If, if you're just being told this, it seems weird. But God, in, in verse 12 of that same chapter, tells them why they need to do this. Verse 12 says, For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, 
And I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments for I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day for you shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. The people must take a lamb in their, in their, with, for their family and slaughter it, place the blood on the doorpost and over the header so that when God comes to execute this final plague on Egypt, this plague where he's going to kill the firstborn of every son, in all of the land, whether man or beast, as God comes to execute that plague, when he sees the blood on the doorposts, he passes over them. He doesn't execute his judgment on that house. He doesn't execute his judgment. He literally passes his judgment over them. And in the midst of that story, God That night happens and children and firstborn sons die in Egypt and Pharaoh's son dies and Pharaoh finally relents and lets Israel leave. They're freed from their slavery. The returned exiles in Ezra chapter 6, the people who had just come back to Israel, who had just built the temple. They have a personal connection with that story. Not only is it the story of their their ancestors, the story of their people, but it's also the story of their life. They were just in exile. They were just removed from their homeland and allowed to come back. They were allowed to leave exile and return to the city of God. This must have been a joyous first Passover in this temple. A time when the people of Israel can worship God and thank him, not only for the things that he's done in the past for them, but the things that he just did. Look, our God removed us out of Egypt, but also he removed us out of exile in Babylon and brought us back. What a time to celebrate. Celebrating God's past deliverances and his more recent deliverances. We church, we can rejoice in the same way. As Christians who who love Jesus, we too have been freed from slavery, from slavery to sin and death through the sacrifice of the Lamb of God. The celebration of Passover required that a lamb must die. And he promised to spare all of his people who made that bloody sacrifice. That sacrifice of a lamb every year at Passover points to the final, perfect, complete sacrifice offered by Jesus Christ on the cross. And to make it even more clear for us, to make it even more obvious for us that Jesus is the Passover lamb, that he is the final sacrifice for us, Jesus' death takes place at the same time of year as Passover. In fact, his last meal with the disciples was a Passover meal. 
Jesus makes a way for us. And so today, we're going to celebrate our equivalent to Passover. We're going to take communion together today. We're going to take communion together. And the same reason that they celebrate Passover is the same reason that we take communion, that we partake in that. It's so that we can remember and celebrate the freedom that we have from sin and death because of Jesus' sacrifice for us. And it's through faith in Christ alone that the sins of all who trust in him have been washed clean by his blood. His blood that was on the doorposts, or the lamb's blood that was on the doorposts of their houses and the Lord passed over them. Christ's blood is on our hearts. And so when, G, when God looks at us, he doesn't see sin. He doesn't see brokenness. He doesn't see guilt. He doesn't see death. But instead he sees his son. The perfect, final, complete sacrifice. Given so that we might live. It's for that reason that we celebrate taking communion together. This is not just a personal thing that we do as Christians to remind us of God's love for us or just something that we can reflect on or just take time trying to think about how good God is towards us. This is not just a personal thing. It's a public thing. This is a public display of who we are in Christ. As we take the bread that represents his body and we take the juice that represents his blood, we're proclaiming to others, to others that we identify ourselves with Christ. We claim not only to trust in Christ to save us, but also that we want to live our lives like he lives that we incline our hearts towards him, that we dedicate our whole selves to him. Why? Because he gave of himself completely for us. It's not just a personal thing. It's a public thing. Christ died so that I might live, and this is a public way that we can display that. It's also a family thing. Growing up, the meals that I remember most or the times that I remember most with my family are those big family meals. We all know of them, right? It's Thanksgiving, Christmas, Easter, Fourth of July, birthdays, or any day that grandma wants to make a roast, right? Like we go over to grandma's house and there's a delicious meal ready for us. Those are those days where I remember, like, we're, we're playing with the cousins. I have 13 cousins in my family, and when we all got together, it was chaos. But those are the best memories I have. Those are the things that bind my family together. Those common grounds, those family meals. If I see a cousin of mine whom I'm not super close to, we have a common ground. There's something that binds us together. Not only are we blood related, but we've had meals together. If I ran into a cousin whom I've never had a meal with and we're blood related, I don't have that common ground. I don't have that. This is a family meal. Communion binds us together as a family. 
the same way that a family is bound more and more and more together through these mealtimes that we have. We're bound together as one body. Why? Because we proclaim the same things. Jesus is enough. He saves us through the cross, and we want to devote our lives to him. It's a family meal. We might not be earthly members of the same family. We might not be blood-related, but spiritually, if we've given our lives to Christ, we are connected to one another. We're part of the same family. Brothers and sisters in Christ. So we're going to take communion together. We're going to eat this family meal together today, celebrating our deliverances from sin and death and acknowledging our connection to Christ, that through him we're brought together as one family of faith. And the cool thing is, is we then can leave here united in living our lives in such a way that no one will ever have to wonder whether Christ lives in us. It will be obvious. So we take communion together. The worship team's gonna head back up. And as, they, as we begin this communion time, here's how things are gonna work. We're gonna take a few minutes while we, while we worship together just to pray and reflect. The same way that they purified themselves in Ezra chapter six, we wanna purify ourselves. Confessing to God the sins that are in our lives and thanking him for the love and the sacrifice he's already poured out for us. So we're gonna worship together and we're gonna reflect together. And then we will come forward and receive the communion elements. Now, because of this whole COVID-19 precautionary world that we live in, we got to be a little careful with this. So here's how it's going to work. Preston, the newest member of our family, and Scott are going to come forward and they're going to put gloves on. And we've got communion elements in a little cup. There's a little cup of juice and on top of that is a little piece of bread. And they'll stand at either end of the aisle and they'll place that in your hands. So we're not cross-contaminating or doing anything like that. Those boxes were sealed. I opened them for the first service. That's it. That's what's happening just so we're all aware, okay? So we'll, during worship, reflect, purify ourselves, confess to God, and then come and receive those elements, but don't take them yet. Take them back to your seat. Finish worshiping with us, and then as a family, together, we'll take communion after we get done worshiping together. Does that make sense for everybody? Head nods? Okay. Let's pray, and then we'll worship and take communion together. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you that even in these stories of the Old Testament, we can see that it's clearly pointing us towards your sacrifice for us on the cross. And God, we praise you for that sacrifice, for that that body and blood that you poured out for us so that the sin that was in our lives that condemns us to death might be replaced by your life. And so God, we praise you. We praise you for that sacrifice. We praise you for your love poured out for us. And God, today we confess our sins. 
before we come and take this this Passover meal, this communion meal, this family meal, God, we confess our sins to you. And we ask for your forgiveness. And let this meal be a reminder to us as we move through this world, as we move through this life, let this meal be a reminder to us of why we live the way we do why we want to live our lives in such a way that no one will wonder whether you live in us. It's because of your love, because of your sacrifice, because of the life you give us. Take just a minute, reflect, confess, thank God for the forgiveness he's already poured out for you and then come and receive your communion elements.